for certain they know where Sabine was taken? I have no idea. What? No idea. We'll just see where it goes. It could go anywhere. I know. That's better than going nowhere. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, but it feels as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. The Ahsoka series was a roller coaster of emotion. At times I was underwhelmed, confused, taken out of the experience. And at other times I found it moving and it compelled me in ways that only a really good Star Wars story can. There were highlights that had me thinking about the characters and the deeper meanings for hours or even days after watching them. In contrast to these highlights were several episodes that produced more of a neutral reaction, one in which I didn't have much to think or say, and so I'm glad that I waited until the end of the series to do a wrap-up episode. But this isn't going to be a standard recap review episode by episode. This review will be brief. What I want the majority of this to focus on is how I felt about those themes and beats that had me thinking about larger ideas. And most of those moments involved Anakin Skywalker. But more on that later. When I did my initial reaction to the first two episodes of the show, I had a mostly positive impression with some misgivings about the pacing and the acting choices throughout. Those misgivings, unfortunately, only multiplied. I found it difficult to connect emotionally to the show at times, and there were a few moments peppered here and there where the emotional connection did occur, but it was brief. The series in the earlier episodes meandered too often. It lingered on characters giving slow and plodding monologues about things that didn't enhance the story for me in any meaningful way. Even though I initially said that the Ahsoka show looked as good as feature films, I became more disappointed in the production values of the show as it crept along. Not to the same levels that I was disappointed in the production values of Obi-Wan, but close. Due to the limitations of the volume, every planet that the characters visit has a gray, overcast sky, paired with a landscape that is just as monotonous. Even Setos, with its forest of red trees, cliff faces, and vast ocean, appear to clone the dull and repetitious expanses of those three visual elements in every wide shot. And that's probably because within the limitations of a television budget, Copying and pasting your graphics is the best way to save money. I get it. Those limitations I can forgive once, or even a few times, but now having seen this technique repeated many times in the streaming shows, it's beginning to wear on me. I long to see these stories told in a cinematic scope, where the budget can provide a worthy backdrop for what the story and the characters deserve. And that brings me to the story, because as I said in my initial reaction episode, the story for the Ahsoka series is mostly good, even great at times. Sure took you long enough. 
Well, you didn't exactly tell any of us where you were going. That's because I didn't know where I was going. Typical. Always a plan. Never a good one. Hey, it worked, didn't it? Didn't it? It worked. <laughs> <laughs> One of my most anticipated hopes going into the series was seeing Ezra featured in a big way. And I wasn't disappointed. As a fan of the show Rebels, I was happy to see so many of those characters appear in live action, even if sometimes I struggled to accept them as the same versions I fell in love with from animation. Hera was one such character. It took time, but she grew on me in the series. Chopper was Chopper from the first frame to the last, so there's no problems there. Sabine was pretty spot on, perfect even. And I've already talked about my misgivings about Ahsoka in those early episodes of the series, but the good news there is that those feelings about her changed as the show progressed. But Ezra, this was the Ezra I loved so much from Rebels. Iman Esfandi absolutely nailed the character. Not only was he every bit the same character I remembered from Rebels, but he actually felt like a person who had grown and matured while retaining much of his playfulness and humor. Ezra was a beacon of light and hope in this series, and even though he was featured sparingly, he was used effectively to not only move the story along, but also be an emotional touchstone around which Sabine and Ahsoka could reunite and repair their relationship. The search for Ezra was something that had been a point of contention between Ahsoka and Sabine before it proved to be a catalyst around which each could find common ground as teacher and student. Ezra was worthy of that devotion, and the reunion between the three was immensely satisfying. So what about Thrawn? Could it be the recently deceased Ahsoka Tano? Impossible. I thought it was beyond you to underestimate a Jedi. After all, death and resurrection are common deceptions played out by both Night Sister and Jedi. Bela assured me of her death. And yet, he was once a Jedi. So, we must regard him as flawed. Now, we shall consider Sokotano alive until we know otherwise. And we shall prepare accordingly. Yeah, okay. I've never been as impressed with Thrawn as a lot of fans are. I read a couple of the Timothy Zahn books, and I found the character to be intriguing, but also a bit one-note. I felt that Thrawn's calculation and precision was portrayed at the expense of the other character's lack of such cunning. In other words, Thrawn was only brilliant because everyone around him wasn't. He was clever when the story needed him to be, and never at any time did I feel like the tactics were all that impressive from a strategic point of view. He's methodical, yes, but that characteristic can also be tedious. I guess what I'm saying is, a little of Thrawn goes a long way. Fortunately, this series had just the right amount of Thrawn. Having Lars Mikkelsen reprise the character in live action was smart, given how evocative and distinctive Mikkelsen's voice is. And for the most part, his look was... okay. There were times when it just seemed like he was a dude wearing a lot of blue makeup, and for some reason, he still looks too much like Elon Musk to me, but I digress. The blade 
Both Talson. Take it. Sister. I was, and still am, somewhat neutral, underwhelmed, whatever you want to call it, about the Night Troopers, the Night Sisters, the mystical force energy of Thrawn's alliances in this new galaxy. I mean, it makes sense that Thrawn would seek out Force users considering that it was the Force that had defeated him in the known galaxy not once, but twice, and I was mostly okay with it. I wasn't wild about the look of the troopers and the whole undead thing. Well, it was sort of goofy, but hey, Star Wars does goofy a lot and it's just part of its DNA at this point, so I'll get over it. Perhaps the most disappointing aspect of the entire series was how underused Balin and Shin were. When I was a bit older than you are now, I watched everything I knew burn. The Jedi Temple? I couldn't make sense of it at the time. As you get older, look at history. You realize it's all inevitable. Fall of the Jedi, rise of the Empire. It repeats again and again and again. And isn't it our turn now? Won't our alliance with Thrawn finally bring us into power. That sort of power is fleeting. What I seek is the beginning. So I may finally bring this cycle to an end. And that beginning is here. If the old stories are true, I don't have a lot to say about those characters because, well, neither did the show. It was established that each had their own agendas, separate from each other, and at times, separate from Thrawn. But those agendas were never satisfactorily presented, and in the case of Balin, downright perplexing as to the ambiguity of his desires. His plan to find an ultimate source of power that would lay waste to the revolving cycles of good versus evil and burn it all down, never materialized, and was never even hinted at beyond some tantalizing easter eggs that pointed, literally, to figures like the Mortis gods and perhaps even Abeloth from Legends. But since his motivations were so vague, they don't really warrant much speculation. I'm certainly intrigued by the appearance of the Mortis statues at the end of the series, and I'm eager to see more of this journey. But those feelings are overshadowed by the sad fact that even if we see Balin's quest continue, it won't be with Ray Stevenson, who sadly passed away. I wonder if the reason we didn't see more of Balin's journey in the new galaxy is because it was edited out and will be included in season two, or whatever series or movie comes out next that features him. Only time will tell. One of my favorite elements of the Force is how it manifests itself within nature, its harmonies strum with all living things, great and small. The greatness of the Force is not confined by size, enhancing the possibility of finding it in every single living molecule of life in existence. It's in the small, unassuming places if one knows where to look, 
and it favors the bold if they seek it out within nature's greatest titans. Episode 5, The Shadow Warrior, was a turning point in the series. It was a nexus of story and themes and momentum that left me confounded and moved. This was something I'd been waiting for, and it's what I'd been missing in the earlier episodes. All the pieces were assembled in those earlier episodes, the basic outline of the plot, the players, the performances, the music, the production, but episode 5 is where they came together in confluence. Kevin Kiner's score, beyond reproach throughout the entire series, is finally given a story in episode 5 with emotional stakes that live up to the exceptional scores he provides. When the orchestra swells to herald the migration of the Purgle Pod, I was filled with awe and wonder. Evasive maneuvers, get clear of their path. It's been a long time since Star Wars made me feel that way, and it was so satisfying to feel it again. I've always been drawn to the beasts of Star Wars. They've captured my imagination for decades, and so I'm a pretty easy mark for spectacle that showcases massive hyperspace traveling intergalactic space whales. I was counting on those purgles to be the key to allow Ahsoka or anyone else the means to find Thrawn and Ezra, and yet when it happened, I was still taken aback by how moving and transcendent it was, especially occurring alongside the transition of Ahsoka the Grey into Ahsoka the White. Master? I didn't expect to see you so soon. The visage of Anakin that greets Ahsoka in the world between worlds of Ahsoka's spiritual odyssey fundamentally changes her. Like a shadow cast across her memories, Anakin returns to her in the same way he appeared as the last time she saw him at the end of the Clone War. That's the version of Anakin she wants to remember, because it's the only form of Anakin that allows Ahsoka to avoid her feelings about what came next. She's been haunted by this memory for years, suppressing it burying it deep down so thoroughly that it manifested as a wall that she erected between her and anyone that she might have a close relationship with. What's the lesson, Master? Live. Or die. I won't fight you. Heard that before. Ahsoka has been running from the darkness for years. The gray cloak she dons at the end of the Clone War represents the emotional exile. She remains Ahsoka the Gray for many years, and it affects her judgment and her conduct when it comes to Sabine and Sabine's needs as a student. In addition, Ahsoka choosing to remember Anakin in this very specific way hindered her ability to see all the pitfalls that they both experienced together as a result of being complicit in the war. That's what Anakin's final lesson is meant to teach. This isn't what I trained for. 
We must adjust to the times. Look, when Obi-Wan taught me, we were keepers of the peace. But now, to win this war, I have to teach you to be a soldier. Is that all I'll have to teach my own Padawan one day? How to fight? Do you even want a Padawan? Hmm? You know, teaching's not all it's cracked up to be. Really? What makes you say that? I'm joking. You're joking? Yeah, I'm joking. How can you joke at a time like this? What would you prefer? I don't know. Tell me, what do you want? You want me to be more serious? I'd prefer it. Listen, I'm teaching you how to lead, how to survive. And to do that, you're going to have to fight. What if I want to stop fighting? Then you'll die. This vision of Anakin forces her to confront her past and to face death itself as a moment of truth in which she must come to terms with the way she was taught and how she was taught to be a fighter first, Jedi second. The gray robe represents the specter of guilt that she's carried with her regarding her role in the war and her choice to leave Anakin, which she may feel hastened his slide into the dark side. Ever since the War Between Worlds debuted in the Rebel series, it's been a prickly addition to canon. It's such a bizarre and incongruent idea, and yet the way it embodies the notion that all events and people in space-time are somehow connected feels organic. But fans see it as being a way to retcon parts of the existing narrative that they don't like. Or worse, a time-traveler, multiverse vehicle. When Ezra used the World Between Worlds to pull Ahsoka out of her fight with Vader, many fans assumed that he had changed history. But when he considers doing the same for Kanan, Ahsoka reminds him of why that's not possible. I can reach him. Ezra, Kanan gave his life so that you could live. If he's taken out of this moment, you all die. You don't understand what you're asking me to do. Yes, I do. You can't save your master, and I can't save mine. I'm asking you, to let go. One of the ways to interpret what happens in the world between worlds is that it's a place to examine choices. One's own and the choices of others. Ezra didn't change history by removing Ahsoka from the fight. Ahsoka was always removed from that fight at that very moment, by Ezra. That was Ezra's choice. It was always going to be his choice. And he would not be able to save Kanan because that choice would have destroyed everything Kanan was trying to protect. The World Between Worlds is a place to examine choice. I choose to live. When Anakin presents Ahsoka with this ultimatum, she chooses something else. She redefines the meaning of the choice. By throwing away the lightsaber, she's broken the cycle. She refuses to bow to a binary fate, and in doing so, frees herself of the guilt and disconnect that have been holding her back for so long. 
This disconnect had prevented her from experiencing the Force in its full measure and what it had to teach her. There's hope for you yet. When she emerges from the world between world vision, the heaviness of Ahsoka in the previous scenes is gone. There is a lightness to her, a sense of hope and optimism and connection, not only to the Force and its representatives within nature, but also to those around her, to the people who care the most for her and represent her extended family, Hera, Sabine, Jason, Ezra, Huyang. This is not the sullen and stoic Ahsoka we first met in The Mandalorian. This Ahsoka is positively radiant. Ahsoka's new embrace of life and purpose has given her a sense of optimism. No longer does she see pitfalls filled with danger and treacherous consequence in every choice or personal attachment. She sees mystery and wonder and faith within the Force. Just before the Purgles jump to hyperspace, Ahsoka shares parting words with Hera. Ahsoka, looks like they're about to jump. Sorry you can't make the trip. That's no, all right. Jason's too young to travel between galaxies. Hera, I'll find them. I promise. May the Force be with you. Hope is paramount in the final moments, just as the whales jump to hyperspace. Ahsoka's expression resplendent with the light of the destiny that awaits her. The more I thought about Ahsoka's appearance in this series, the more I thought about these metaphysical concepts of self. The question of whether Ahsoka was speaking to Anakin's actual Force ghost or merely her memories of Anakin is irrelevant. This is because no matter which is true, it doesn't change the fact that Ahsoka's impression of Anakin is every bit as real and valid to her as his actual self. She'll never be inside his mind and experience his thoughts and feelings as he did, so all that she knows about him are the impressions and feelings she had about him when he was alive. Those are the parts of Anakin that survive within the Force. The best parts of Anakin live on in the memories of those who loved him the most. And that is the part of Anakin that the Force chose to save. It's the part of Anakin that Ahsoka chooses to remember. While the Ahsoka series may have been a mixed bag in terms of overall impressions, the absolute highlight was the resolution of the Ahsoka and Anakin relationship. For that reason alone, this series was fulfilling in providing closure to that part of the Ahsoka story. There have been hints that Ahsoka will ascend to bigger and greater things in the future, and I look forward to seeing what Dave Filoni has in store for her on the next leg of her journey. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabres and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember, your focus determines your reality.